Hey there, Cape Cod. It's high noon on Wednesday. Time for today's episode of Life with Gwen. We're here at the Cape Cod Times in the Lifestyle Department talking about all the things that affect your life. And we're really excited today because with us is the Pheasants Executive Chef and Samuel Jackson Green, which I know you're from New York and that sounds a little Southern. Yeah. Family name? Uh, it is a family name. Uh, it's from my father's side. He's from San Antonio, Texas, uh, Vernon Green. So it's yeah, a little bit of lineage. I see. Well, thank you for coming. And uh, you're fairly new at the Pheasant. Mm -hmm. You started uh, Columbus Day weekend? Yeah, uh, mid-October. So, but you've been cooking for um, since 2009. Yes. And uh, I was um, grateful to have you here today. One of the things we want to discuss, and if you guys are watching live, you'll be able to send in some questions. Uh, I always find that chefs know the science behind cooking and, and the reason for things so that their food comes out. You know, they don't have to wonder what dinner is going to be like, you know, their food comes out the same and, um, you know, consistently good. So that's one of the things we may be asking you as well is to give us some tips on how it is that you can do that without us having to go to culinary school. <laughs> Understood. So um, tell me a little bit about uh, about yourself just before we start, the the short version of, of how you went into uh, the culinary field. Well, um, the real short version, um, I'm from Syracuse, New York, and uh, I was coaching uh, a Pop Warner football team. And uh, the, the guy who sponsored the team owned a restaurant and uh, he offered to give me a job while I was finishing high school. Um, and that uh, kind of started me off. And then I, you know, had the pleasure and the talent of working for uh, my first real chef, a man named Abdella, who owned a restaurant in Syracuse called Aladdin's Natural Eatery. And that's kind of where my love for falafel and my love for food kind of blossomed. Yeah, I was uh, wondering about that because, uh, you know, we tend to think of chefs sometimes as as having sort of, you know, taste for, for French preparation and, and, and the sort of classical, but uh, falafel is, is wonderful, and I, I can't tell you how many people just this morning said, oh, you're doing falafel? You know, mm. that's like my favorite food. Oh, cool. So you're in good company, at least with the newsroom. Yeah. <laughs> so, and you have a beautiful spread here. Um, why don't we, before we start talking about putting together this recipe, sure. um, why don't we talk a little bit about the fact that, well, my husband used to tell a story about how he didn't want to cook because when I cooked, it looked like restaurant food. Okay. And really, that was just the whole plating thing. And now that I think about it, maybe he just didn't want to cook. Yeah. Who knows, you know, because um, he was a good cook, but but not a frequent one. And uh, but um, and uh, it's true, Shirley, his mother watches. So I, okay. I'm not saying anything unkind. He was a good cook, but didn't cook a lot. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the importance of plating. I think you even brought a little something to show us in terms of making a pretty plate. Absolutely. Um, I think when it comes to uh plating food, especially in a professional setting, there are things that you want to keep in mind. Um, people eat with their eyes, um, and so you, it has to be visually appealing for the customer to kind of connect emotionally with the food prior to eating it. Um, so things that kind of really hit for people are uh, negative space, because um, that focuses attention to one specific area, as well as kind of the visual interpretation of textures, 
and tastes. You know, if something looks crunchy, you kind of expect it to be crunchy. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of chefs these days will use plays on that to kind of entice, um, entice the guest. Interesting. Now, maybe you can show us on this plate because we haven't done anything with it yet. But when you say negative space, you mean, mean having the food all on, on one side or? Well, sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think we're going to plate some hummus here in a second. But, uh, you know, you, what I'm talking about is like you have this entire bowl. Right. And, you know, maybe let's say you want hummus for five people. Mm -hmm. Well, you could just fill the bowl and you would have hummus for five people. Um, but by grouping it to one side um, or using, you know, maybe just a thin line across the plate um, are ways to kind of focus the eye's attention on what's going on. Interesting. And that kind of makes it a little more dramatic, you know, maybe kind of like the smoky eye for women's makeup. <laughs> he says to the woman who never wears makeup, even though I try for you guys, um, you know, it's just, it was never a habit. Um, however, I, I do like to dress up food. Okay. So, um, you know, maybe a little oil down the middle if you yeah, have, a, you know, if just to draw some attention. Yeah, if you're ready, I can show you what I brought to prepare for right now. It's up to you. You're yeah, the boss. Yeah. Do you want to do the recipe first or you want to do the presentation first? Well, let's do the presentation now since we're Sounds good. talking about it. So over here I have my hummus and, you know, it's in a bowl and it's, you know, just hummus. Right. You know? Okay. Which tastes fantastic, but isn't always the prettiest until you dress it up. Yeah, I think uh, David Chang right now is doing a series called Ugly Delicious. And, um, you know, where it's kind of like this whole movement towards food that may not be this kind of refined European style, but still delicious. And mm -hmm. hummus is kind of like that. You know, it's, I mean, it's paste. Yep. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Unlike the stuff you ate in kindergarten, the hummus right. tastes good. But what I think you can do... This is what I'm talking about with negative space. Is you can use the plate to your advantage. Um, so we have like a slightly raised lip plate. Okay, we're going to ask you to put that forward a little bit so everyone can see it. See? And what you can see is I've put like a dollop of it right here on the edge. Uh -huh. and I just took my spoon and pushed it a little bit with the natural curvature of the plate. And you can see that you can get a nice lip and some relief. And so there you have height and texture all in one. And then if you want to take it to the next level, you're looking for something that's like a color contrast. Uh-huh. So right now I have a little bit of za'atar in my hand. And, and tell us what za'atar is. Za'atar is a basic seasoning. Um, it comprises most traditionally of three main ingredients, uh, sesame seeds, uh, sumac, and dried thyme. Interesting. So it's a very herbaceous, um, kind of slightly sour from the sumac kind of sprinkle that a lot of people will put on to garnish bread or garnish something like hummus, you know, or even a salad. Is um, za'atar specifically from uh, Lebanon or is it uh, generally a, a popular spice in the Middle East? I think it's a pretty popular spice in the Middle East. I think there are, um, you know, an endless variety of some of these basic spice blends, but it's definitely something that is seen in Lebanon and what people kind of associate with. Yeah, it's interesting. I see that um, just from watching the food world that that some of these uh, blends will kind of make their way to the West. Uh, it sounds like this one, uh, Chinese Five spe Space. Uh, yeah. One more time, Chinese Five Spice had, uh, had a real run, and I haven't seen it as much recently, but it was uh, something that we saw quite a bit of for a while there. 
Yeah, I mean, Chinese Five Spice is a great blend of sweet spices and Szechuan peppercorns. Um, so you get a lot of interesting flavors, kind of sweet and savory play at the whole at the same time. And those wonderful sort of red and reddish brown spices are are great. You know, I think in the, especially in the winter, but you know, yeah. anytime. Yeah, they're very they're warming in general, and they go really well with fat. Um, and that kind of means that you can use it in a wide variety of proteins, anything from like a salmon to a pork butt. That's interesting. I didn't know about the fat connection. Yeah. So it just the, the balance is off of it. it uh... Well, fat is something that one is a balancer. It'll balance out bitter and spice, um, you know, the way that it plays on the tongue. Um, and also fat is something that will, you know, shall we say, bloom a flavor. You know, when you make, oh, a, when you make a tea, you know, you have uh, hot water and you have a dried herb and you pour the hot water over the dried herb and all of a sudden that hot water becomes infused with the flavor of the herb. Right. But if and you, it smells good. And it smells good. You can do the same thing with fat um, and spice because the, uh, the, the essential oils that are in the spices um, before they're all ground, I mean, it may not look oily, but there mm. are a lot of essential oils in there. That's why it smells so nice. Um, those will transfer over to the fat. Well, interesting. Yeah. So, for example, um, in, in your kitchen, how might you uh, use, uh, you know, Five Spice? I think people are pretty familiar with that. Sure. Um, I think uh, a great way to go forward with Five Spice and fat is something like duck confit. Um, you can do a dry cure with uh, the Chinese Five Spice. And after you're done curing the duck, you know, you're going to, essentially poach it off in its own fat um, and those spices will kind of inundate the fat and kind of give that you know lush feeling and um, you know kind of uh, sensation of warming spices and like you get to add a whole layer of flavor Absolutely. which is always the big thing about restaurant food you know it's a privilege to talk to a chef and and then you you realize that that you're eating not just on on the basic taste which is very important but you also have different layers uh that have gone into it and if you're like me and my friends we're sitting there going <laughs> you probably see people doing this you and and the owners of the restaurant but um it, it's saying now how do they do that you know um so yeah. It's, that's why it's so nice to have you here to explain some of these things. Oh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's my pleasure to explain these things um, to the best of my knowledge. Hopefully nobody's judging me too uh, technically right now. Um, but yeah, uh, when it comes no, to... No, this is going to be a test at the end. Did yeah. we not tell you about the written exam? <laughs> so you can't leave the building without the written exam. Um, you know, from the lessons that I learned, uh, you know, kind of because you're segueing into uh, flavor profiles... Um, you know, having different types of ingredients and different types of preparations allow you to give a dish uh, depth. Um, so something that's cooked for a very long time, you could consider it to be kind of like a base flavor um, uh, and to kind of translate that to someone who's not so aware. Base flavors are things that, you know, you find very satisfying and, and very kind of comforting. Um, you could even say... Um, you know, like umami is a base flavor, mm -hmm. you know, like a rich broth or a mushroom that's been, you know, roasted really well. Um, and then if you want to give, uh, you know, something like a roast mushroom, uh, a different layer of flavor, um, you could, you know, zest some fresh lemon rind over the top. And then you'd have a raw ingredient with uh, a cooked ingredient. 
And those are two different levels of flavor, two different ways that they mm -hmm. play on your tongue and in your mind. Um, and that's kind of the essential building block or essential technique that chefs use to, you know, build flavor in dishes. So I love that too. You know, when you're eating and, and, and you get the, the front forward flavor, the high flavor, mm -hmm. I think of it as high. Yeah. And, and then, and then the flavor that, you know, and often it's a little bit of a, a heat, a fire at the back of the, your tongue, you know? Mm -hmm. So we could, we could spend weeks and write a book on this. So yeah, let's absolutely. move back into some of the things that we might be able to, uh, do in our own kitchens. Sure. So you have a Lebanese dinner coming up uh, February 6th Thank at the Pheasant. Yep. And um, you're going to be making one of your favorite foods. Falafel, yes. Okay. And you brought the ingredients to make it here. And, and we were going to deep fry it here, but I was a little concerned about the sprinkler system, you know, yeah. messing up the studio. And uh, I'm trying to keep a job here. So, you know, <laughs> didn't seem like a good plan. So you did bring us some uh, finished product to... Uh, to show, so why don't you walk us through the falafel? Absolutely, um, so first and foremost, uh, falafel is kind of like a chickpea fritter, um, especially from Lebanon, um, that's where they use garbanzo beans. Uh, throughout the Middle East, there are different variations, different blends on different beans. Um, the Egyptians use um, uh, fava beans exclusively. Oh, interesting, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, so um, it's a different texture. So for me, I yeah. use chickpeas because that's what I fall in love with. Let me um, just ask you one question about the fava beans. Do they, um, they use the, like the, uh, the medium shell, you know, when you get them, they have a sort of slightly harder outside? Yes, you gotta shell them. Yeah, no, 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 no. I know that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> How dumb do you think I am? Don't answer that. Um, but, but there's like a, a heavier skin on the fava bean. You know, when you when you're after it's cooked and you're you're eating it, um, you just incorporate all of that. Uh, well, the it depends on what Egyptian you talk to, but I'm pretty positive that they would take that shell off. Okay. Yeah, um, it's a lot of effort. Anybody Egyptian who makes hum, uh not hummus, but who makes falafel, um, give us a call. Write in. Um, this is Facebook Live, so write in and let us know because um, we're going to be looking for an answer to that. Hmm. All right. Onward. All right. So my falafel consists of uh, chickpeas, fresh herbs, lemon, garlic, and onion, um, as well as some spices that I have for you all lined up here. And we have for you the recipe right here at the bottom of today's Cape Cod Times food page, so you don't have to write this all down as he's speaking. But it's a it's very straightforward, a very simple technique. Um, one thing to remember is that chickpeas are dried and they absorb about three times their amount in water. So over here I have, you know, the eight ounces of chickpeas from the recipe dried, and it's about like this. And when you soak them overnight, um, or you can let them soak for a couple of days, they'll expand into that. So you might look at this and say, oh, hey, this is not gonna make a lot of falafel, but you know, as they absorb the water, they get bigger. And is, is there um, a reason, either in terms of cost or quality, to do that rather than using them from the can? Well, um, to be blunt, um, you, you can't use anything from the can because they're already cooked. Mm -hmm. um, you know, hydrating something is not the same as cooking something. Interesting. Yeah. So, so you want to uh, make sure that you've just hydrated so that you're working with the, the raw uh, chickpeas and, and you can, because you're going to cook them as part of the falafel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's something to remember that, um, 
you know, these are going to get uh, cooked uh, in a heavy saute pan or a deep fryer. So there's going to be a lot of kind of aggressive cooking uh, that's going on with these chickpeas. You know, it's not going to be something that's light or something that's baked, you know, kind of a cooking technique that's a little bit softer on the food. You know, when you drop something into 350 degree oil, you know, it's a, a pretty guaranteed reaction. Okay. Um, but just to point out what you can see, and maybe it's going to be really hard to see on camera, but the chickpeas will soak and you'll kind of get the texture of boiled peanuts. Again, a little bit of Southern heritage for you, but you can see how it just looks. Okay, let's see if my arms are long enough to get it over there. Yeah, there but it looks go. a little bit waxy and you can still see the center of it is a little bit raw. So did you, um, you just showed that? Yeah. So when we are making falafel, do we have to shell no, each one hummus, of those? No, but when you make hummus, you're supposed to, yeah. Ah. Yeah. Can you do it afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> no, unfortunately. Like strain it? No, you can't. Um, but Could I eat this? Absolutely. We can oh. eat it right now if you'd like. Okay. It's delicious. It's like what you would get on a salad. Harder than I would expect, though. Mm -hmm. Harder right. than the ones that you get cooked. Right, mm -hmm. but you got to remember that you're going to cook it again. Kind of nutty, a little mm -hmm. nutty. Yeah. I always feel bad when we um, do this. I wish that I could give you all one of these uh, cooked beans, uh, peas, but uh, I can't. So we'll just have to, you'll have to do it at home. Yeah. And uh, it's not cooked. I made a mistake. It's, it's actually soaked. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so after that, what I'll do is I'll take my, my garlic, my herbs, um, my onion and a little bit of the lemon juice and kind of buzz that into a slurry. Okay. Right in the food processor. Nothing fancy, nothing hard. You just get the stuff in there and you let it buzz around for a couple of minutes until you get kind of something that looks um, like a paste. Right. Now, um, did you, you hit the pulse or, or uh, because when you're doing this for the first time, it, it, you know, it's muscle memory for you, but if for someone's sure. making the dish for the first time, um, do you do you pulse it? You said something about getting the texture of, uh, um, i got to read my own story, but you, you were saying well, uh, to get the texture. Um, so that we haven't talked about the, the chickpeas yet. We're talking about... Uh, oh, the, the other, the, right. The first step, um, but we can get right back to those. No, that's um, okay. Your when recipe. It, when it comes to uh, pulsing or non-pulsing, I think it really kind of comes down to whether the cook is comfortable using the food processor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the pulse function definitely gives you a lot more control over exactly how much action is going on in the food processor. Um, but for someone like myself who's done this a few times before, and I think anybody who's used a food processor, um, you know, you can just turn it on and let it go for, you know, 60 seconds. Okay. And it'll do the job. Okay. So you will, once again, you'll get your paste by by the, uh, the fresh herbs, mm -hmm. the garlic, the onion, and the lemon juice. And no oil yet? No oil yet. Okay. Um, in fact, uh, oil should not go into the falafel mix because if you put oil in there, it'll separate out in the deep fryer and uh, hold together. Interesting. So yeah. then you'll just have like crumbs deep frying. Yeah, yeah. and the dirty fryer later. Who knew? Yeah. So I, you knew. I, I knew. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so after uh, you've made the herbaceous paste, you can set that aside in a bowl. Um, and then you can put your chickpeas back into that same um, food processor. You don't have to wash it because it's going to be all the same flavors right. incorporated. Right. This is where you definitely want to use the pulse function. Okay. I was starting backwards on that. Yeah, understood. Um, and so you just want to lightly pulse it 
Um, and the pieces are going to be hard enough uh, to kind of bounce around inside of that machine. And what you want to do is at first they're going to start moving really, really fast. Right. And then it's going to start to slow down as the pieces get smaller. As soon as it starts to slow down, you've chopped it enough. Okay. You know, so that's kind of like the visual trick that I use to know that I've got the chickpeas ground fine enough, but not too fine. Is does that result in a little bit of a, a chewy feel to the the falafel if you have some pieces still? Absolutely, I think um, what you're looking for or what I'm looking for is a combination of different textures. Mm -hmm. You know, the food processor is not a perfect machine; it doesn't create, you know perfectly symmetrical pieces all the time. So I'm looking for a grade and texture, so some very small pieces and some larger ones. I think, um, as you can see in the falafel here, when you break it apart, you know, you can see some of the bigger pieces oh. of the falafel, and that helps have add some texture and like some nuttiness, as you observed earlier, mm -hmm. to the end product. Very nice, let me hold this up to the camera. Yeah, absolutely. My short little T-Rex arms, <laughs> so. Here we go. Can you guys see that? Okay. All right. I might uh, right. remind people if they want to ask a question. We're getting to that time, and it, I told you it was going to go really fast. Yeah. So we got to get the falafel done before um, before we're out of time. Okay. So now All it's right. a race show. All right. So now you have the chopped chickpeas that are in your food processor, and you have the separate bowl of the herbaceous slurry. At this point... Combine the two, mm -hmm. add all of your spices and salt, as well as the cornstarch. Mix it with your hands. It'll be kind of like, you know, a kindergarten moment where you're playing with Play-Doh. You know, it'll start to tighten up a little bit. Good to do with the kids. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and at that point, you'll get something that's kind of wet and soft at the same time. And you can scoop that into little balls uh, and then throw it in the fry later. Quick question. Some people do balls, some people do patties. Yeah. What's the difference? Well, traditionally the discs um, fry faster and there's actually kind of a traditional tool that you use in order to make them. It's like a, looks kind of like a, a disc with a pusher and you'll take something like this in your mix, spread it off and push it right into the oil. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, but the, it doesn't really matter. I think um, for myself, uh, I think uh, different falafel vendors differentiate themselves on different shapes, mm -hmm. you know? So for me, I thought of a way like, you know, how am I going to make my falafel special? You know, how am I going to plate it? How am I going to, you know, make it something that's the same but different? Um, um, I'm reading, we got a comment and it uh it says ditto for using uncooked beans. Um, someone saying uh, that uh, um, peas for control over exactly uh, how it's completed. True. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely can't use something out of a can. Uh, if you want to make a quick hummus, you absolutely can. Um, but for falafel, absolutely not. You got to start with the dried ones. Interesting. Yeah. It um, that's probably true for black beans and burgers and and all of that. Yeah, I think it kind of depends on what your end goal is. You know, are you trying to create something that is, you know, stewy, or are you trying to create something that is, you know, that you could potentially deep fry, mm -hmm. you know, and there are some different nuances there in order to, you know, figure out which one you want. 
Okay, so a lot of people, and I'm kind of one of them, uh, get nervous about deep frying at home if they don't have like a, you know, a special device for it. Can you quickly talk about the deep frying your falafel and, and what your, see I did it wrong that time, falafel, <laughs> and uh, what, um, what you use for a pot and how deep it needs to be, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, you know, the first and biggest driver is how big are your falafel balls okay. or your falafel discs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for me, even though I do have professional equipment at the restaurant, I still try and make them a little bit smaller because they fry faster and they also steam a little bit harder, which helps get that balance and texture. Okay. Um, at home, I think that you could easily use um, a deep cast iron pan that has maybe, um, you know, like a two and a half to a four inch uh, sidewall. I think that would absolutely be deep enough. And um, how much oil do you need? You're going to be frying them just till they're covered or you want to submerge them so they're floating or? Well, um, I think you could use just enough oil to where they just start to float. Okay. So it doesn't have to totally cover the falafel ball. In fact, um, you know, when you're making it at home, you know, you could say you could use enough oil to say maybe cook half of it and then you can just flip it over um, and then that'll finish it. So it doesn't have to be, you don't have to create a huge basin of, you know, hot oil. Um, but, you know, it's, that's how it's done. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I made that change in making latkes, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't like them when they're submerged in oil, so. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, so, it's slightly different, but, uh, you know, it's still the same thing. Potatoes will have to be a conversation for another day. Indeed. Because Indeed. we have five minutes left. So, um, we um, did you want to talk a little bit about plating or, or um, one thing that came up when we were talking was you said that you're less likely to have a lot of vapor release because these this is not a, a high water content. This, uh, when you're frying mm -hmm. at home, yeah. Uh, one thing to keep in mind if you're doing any type of frying or deep pan frying at home is that the more water content um, that is in your product, uh, the more violent the reaction is going to be when it meets the hot oil. So if you stand have, back, be careful. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're frying, you know, frozen chicken tenders, mm -hmm. um, you know, those are frozen and all the water is on the outside. So that's going to be a very violent reaction. But if you're throwing in something like a chicharron, uh, which is a dried piece of uh, pork skin, you know, that reaction is going to be relatively mild. You know? Good. Okay, so yeah. just have to plan for it and uh, make sure you've got plenty of uh, height in the pan. Yes. So, um, you know, I want to point out that in the winter, when restaurants are looking to, um, in the summer, they're they're slammed and 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 looking to just feed everyone and do a good job of it. But in the winter, they're looking for creative ways to bring the neighbors in, and uh, and one of those is special dinners, like the Lebanese dinner that yeah. you're doing on February sixth. Other restaurants are doing cooking classes, it's it's a great time of year to be able to get out and meet the folks who are running the local restaurants. And uh, in this case, many of you probably know the pheasant, what is now the pheasant in Dennis, as the red pheasant, because up until uh, 18 months ago, that's when it was bought. It's a um, 250-year-old uh, barn building that is on, on uh, 6A, and it was bought by Adam and Erica Dunn, and they're doing a lot of exciting things there. Bringing you on. No, thank you. Now, people might know you uh, from Provincetown, right? Yeah. Um, for the last four seasons, uh, I worked at a place called the Nor'east Beer Garden in Provincetown, mm -hmm. uh, 206 Commercial Street, if you're looking for it. 
Um, you know, it was a, a wonderful experience. I really enjoyed working there, but I was ready to move on. And, uh, you know, I met these lovely people. And, and up to the, the and, executive chef position. Yeah. So um, any uh, last minute things you can think of in terms of things that we could use in our home kitchens? One that people always ask me, um, you know, I, I used to, because my mother was a post-World War II, you know, uh, convenience bride. And sure. uh, I used to overcook everything you know i mean that meat was not getting out of the you know and and i spent a good part of my my uh, married life learning to uncook things <laughs> so um tell tell me just a little bit like when you're making beef for example how how come the kitchen gets it to come out so good in terms of the you know doneness ah uh, well i think very quickly when it comes to especially something like beef uh there are two things that uh professional cooks use uh, one is a meat thermometer, and two is the appropriate amount of salt. Um, the salt helps the Maillard reaction, which is a caramelization of proteins, um, which is what allows you to get that crust on, say, a piece mm -hmm. of uh, steak like a ribeye or a New York or even a hamburger. Um, so being aware of the internal temperature as well as kind of the external temperature um, is really what allows us to kind of. And I heard that, that if you're going for, I, I just saw this in a TV cooking lesson, um, but I heard that if you're going for that crust, you want to do your salting close to the time when you're going to cook it. Absolutely. Okay. Because otherwise it soaks in and, and starts to do other things to, to the meat. It does indeed. Yeah. Okay. So good tip, put the salt on just before it hits the pan, make sure the pan's hot enough. Yeah. And uh, use a, a thermometer, a, a cooking thermometer, probably the, the most useful tool for a home cook. Yeah, uh, I also truly enjoy uh, laser thermometers, but um, they don't tell you the internal temperature. Oh, they don't? <laughs> no. Well, once again, that that's probably more of a professional thing. Yeah. Just uh, a regular old uh, cooking uh, thermometer will do the job for, for folks at home, a meat thermometer, yeah. Yeah. so that... One, you can have it a little bit rare without worry, worrying that you're going to kill yourself or your guests. Um, and uh, two, so that it doesn't have to be shoe leather. I was guilty. You know, it is nothing quite so disappointing as getting a really nice piece of beef from, from the butcher mm -hmm. and then killing it, you know. Yeah, well, we've all been there. So, oh, good. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, because um, you can't uncook it afterwards. No. I want to thank you so much for coming. Well, it was really you. interesting. And uh, I can always tell because we could go on and on. Um, anything big that you think we might have missed that you want to tell people? Um, you know, as far as professional advice, um, you know, always remember what are the things that help you balance out food. Um, salt and acid are balancers. Um, fat and bitterness are balancers and sweet can also balance with fat and bitter. So those are kind of like the things that I would keep in mind. I mean, but you have to, doing? you have to cook in the sugar, right? Because again, I often will taste sugar that's been sort of tossed into say a turnip mash well, too close I'm to not, the end. When you're talking about um, something that's sweet, I don't necessarily use a lot of white sugar. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, think about something like a balsamic vinaigrette. Uh, you have something that's very bitter, um, and then I'll use honey to mm -hmm. help balance that out. You know what I mean? So that's kind of like where my mind's eye goes. Or if I do a agave or yeah, yeah, or like even um, you know when I do like braised meats or something, I'll use maybe some dried uh, stone fruits or something like that. Oh, that yeah. sounds good. Yeah. So so you're keeping it on on the natural level. You're not introducing that refined product. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, pastry is a whole different ballgame. Um, so, oh yeah, uh, I didn't think we'd even get into pastry. Yeah, yeah so, so just on the savory side, yeah, I try and use the fruits or honey. That sounds great, and yeah. and uh, even just put uh, some cut stone fruits uh, down with the roast or with the. Uh, oh, absolutely! Yeah, for pork loin, you know, quarter an apple and throw that in the pan, and that'll really make a difference. In interesting, yeah. I, I've t taken to uh, putting a, a half a halved lemon inside the uh, along with some garlic cloves inside the cavity for the whole chicken. You oh, know, sure, absolutely, adds a lot. So, yeah. anyway, well, thank you for joining us. If you like cooking i hope you get to see today's show we had a wonderful time and thank you for um, sharing your your education and if you want to taste the chef's food you can do that by going to the pheasant and have a great day thank you so much Thanks. Gwen. it was my pleasure